Welcome to Harvest to Pour, the business of beverages, with your host, Matthew Schiff. This is the podcast for all of those who are involved in the agriculture all the way to the distribution of beverages. And now your host, Matthew Shipp. Hello, I'm Matthew Shipp with Harvest to Pour, and today I am here with Russ Broker from Blacksmith Distillery. How are you doing today? Very good, thanks. How Great. are you? Oh, doing well. So tell us a little bit about Blacksmiths. Tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got, how you found yourself in the Blacksmiths, and kind of his history and where sure. it started. Very good. So I am the uh, fifth of seven kids. Our uh, father, Mike Broker, Michael J. Broker Jr., his father was a blacksmith and a had a sawmill and he had basically he had a little still and he would hide it underneath the sawmill pile not only to keep it under wraps if you will but the heat of the sawmill sawdust would create enough heat to cook the mash so it, was, it just made sense everybody back then you know basically would cook their own something or another so corn whiskey was the most common thing back then well my dad was the seventh of seven kids and uh, was much younger than most of his older siblings. He was an uncle several times over when he was born. And so from Frankenstein, Missouri, you know, a tiny little town no one's ever heard of, but one of the biggest street signs out there. You know, you imagine how long that sign is. This is not too far from Jefferson City down by Lynn and Bonnet's Mill, if any of those are. Anyway, we didn't find out about Dad's crazy bucket list of items that he'd always wanted to have until later on in life. So... When we did find out, you know, he wanted a, you know, typical things like a, a banjo, a canoe, and a still. <laughs> so we found a guy at uh, Knights of Columbus, like everybody would, that made stills. And so for Dad's 70th birthday, the brothers all pitched in and got got him a still. And so that was our first one, and, and it was quite small. We made uh, our first court, and we're all kind of type A sales guys. And so we're like, okay, that's great. Now we need something bigger. And, you know. Homemade, homemade stills and, and mash tons and, and for the first several years. And folks liked what we were doing and asked if they could buy it. And we're like, well, no, that wouldn't be legal. But we kind of decided maybe we should try to apply and see, see what happened, you know, because we heard all kinds of horror stories about, it. well, there was no horror stories for us. Seven months later, we were legal and then we were, had to jump through hoops to make sure that we had all the right things, the uh, building inspected and the water and the labels and all that kind of thing. So it was pretty, pretty rapid after that. Wow. So when you said a while ago when he was hiding, he still under the saw mill, was it? Saw dust. Saw right. dust. How, how, how long ago was that? How, when, when, when were we talking about? Well, that would have been when my dad was a child. So he's okay. 82 now. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. 70 years ago. 70 years ago. Okay. So this, is, this has been a passion of his for some time. Yes. He actually made it a point to interview his father prior to his father passing, my grandfather, to make sure he had the recipe written down. So he has the original Corn recipe, which, I mean, it's not that complicated, but we've we've brought it to modern times. Okay. And I do want to talk a little more about that later in the show because I actually haven't got it down in my notes. What, what were some of these? You said in seven months you were up and running. So Seven months is what it took for the feds to approve us for mm -hmm. a license, yeah. And what were some of your challenges kind of building up to that seven months, not just the licensing, but uh, locations or what were some of your bigger challenges you overcame to get there? Well, we had kind of envisioned that we would use something on, so my brother lives right next door to my dad, which is the, the distillery is in a 1950s dairy barn on my dad's property. So we just basically stored a lot of crap in that, you know, for, for years. We moved to that farm the week I turned seven. So that would have been 1977. And uh, 
you know, really didn't do much in there. Uh, for a short time when we were kids, we had a pool table in there and some, you know, goofing. Mostly it was just storage. And so that was our thought that we would convert it. So we had a lot of things to, to think about for infrastructure because we'd never really been up in the attic. We never really paid much attention to the roof, uh, the water supply, and, you know, what the pipes and things looked like underneath it, the drainage. So we had to get all that inspected and understand it. And then we had to really understand what, what was necessary in the regulations once you had the piece of paper, you know, for what you do next. And that's, that's not evident. <laughs> <laughs> and then the distilling world, you know, you're like, okay, well, you got your license. You know, some people just wait and have an idea. But we wanted to have our, our recipes approved. We wanted to have our labels ready to go, at least for a couple of core main products. So that was, that's what we did that, that first seven, eight months while we were waiting. You know, had everything ready to go. So as soon as we approved, we could move forward. How many of you were involved at that point? So it's my brother, Mike, myself, my brother, John, and my dad. Uh, at first. And since then, my sister Leah, attorney out in North Carolina, is a minority partner. Okay. And uh, how did those, some of those meetings go? I'm sure they were. <laughs> well, it's, it's pretty interesting because it, it, it actually really works out. Um, we're all quite loud and boisterous and very opinionated. But my older brother, he really liked, what would you call it? Like flavored whiskeys. My younger brother, he really likes gin. And I'm a big bourbon person. So I I spent a lot of time in Louisville. I used to have uh, distribution centers that I was in charge of. So I was down there a lot. And I've had the opportunity to try the gamut of fabulous to terrible on the on the bourbon side. And so everybody kind of had what they wanted to do and, you know, a, a flavor profile of what they were looking to make. So that's how we kind of started. So we, we started with da uh, grandpa's corn recipe, corn whiskey recipe. And then I quickly added Elijah Craig's mash bill for our bourbon. And then, you know, it's just easy to make a vodka. And then our brother, John, that, that he had been making a gin for someone out in California that had done well and lots of awards. So he said, hey, why don't you make one for us? So that was our four core products for a while, just those, just those things. And since then, we've increased to 12 different skews. Okay. So you've had some prior experience with uh, spirits for Black Spirits. Start drinking them, yes. Drinking them, okay. <laughs> oh, you said you said you're out in Louisville, so I, I didn't know what were you bringing that to, or was that after you were a member well, of Blacksmith? I, I did seek out the there's a there's a school there, if you will, called uh, Moonshine University. Yes, that's really what it's called. They're very well known in the industry. They do all kinds of training from the very basics to to operational classes for for distillery personnel to marketing to everything. Their, their basic class that they offer is for a bourbon steward. And that's mostly designed for those in hospitality. You know, if you hire on as a waiter, as an example, or a bartender at Fleming's or someplace in, and you don't know squat about spirits, you can get your bourbon steward certification. And then it just, you, you've got the wherewithal to be able to speak intelligently to it. So I took that and then I furthered it and the uh, executive bourbon steward, which is an, what at the time was an on-site only course down there. And I thought that was really great lesson. And mm -hmm. it really helped us to develop what we wanted to do and how we were doing things on the distilling side. Got some good connections and uh, it helped us refine our, our manufacturing. Oh, that's, that's great. That's uh, So you, you brought that too. Is this, was this was happening before you opened or is it 
preparation? Can you talk a lot about the preparation? Right after. Right after. Shortly after. Okay, great. Because that's kind of where I wanted to go is, so now you're past your grand opening and you've been in business for how long? Four and a half years now. Four and a half years. All right. What have been some of the bottlenecks and things you've had to overcome from that point on? Well, a, you can imagine, I think everybody's got a little piece of this story with the wretched COVID scenarios. Not only was that an, an issue for everybody as it, as it just was for people getting sick or what have you, but you had reduced <laughs> personnel. You had all kinds of issues with that. But we also decided, like so many others, to start making hand sanitizer and donating it to the local EMT and the fire. I'd bring some back and donate some to the, the local folks here. That wasn't the bottleneck per se, but the truest issue that impacted us during this whole time was, aside from restaurants and bars being closed, was getting supplies. So many of our, our <clears throat> supplies, such as bottles, corks, seals, you know, they come from overseas. Bottles especially come from China. And, you know, everything from China was bad, stopped, slowed down, not good. What did you do to compensate? I scrambled. <laughs> we, we tried about anything we could do. In some cases, we actually asked others if they had extra bottles that mm -hmm. we could borrow, we could use. In some cases, we had different, different size bottles. We had different things that we were doing. We went to different suppliers and distributors. We were going out of Canada in some cases to try to get different things. It was very, very nervous. I'm the chief supply procurement guy, too. So I had a hell of a time finding things. It was not fun. You were you're busy and also keeping your distance all at the same time. Yes. Oh, man. Wow. And I had a day job. And you had a day job. Oh, man. Okay. So these are some of the major challenges. The reason I bring these up is I like this podcast to sh share everybody's challenges and how they've overcome them because other businesses that I interview or interview past hopefully will benefit from these. Yeah. Everybody's situations are you. And speaking of that, I'd like to get into kind of the heart of the show here is a harvest of poor journey. And what I really want to ask you is just kind of like everything from how, where you're sourcing, how you're sourcing, reason why you're sourcing, what you're sourcing, how you make or how your your spirits are uniquely blacksmith because there's so many unique craft distillers out there, but everybody's got a different palate. Everybody's got a different flavor. You know, how do you make yours uniquely yours? And that might roll into a little bit of our family's recipe and how that's changed and how you've updated it. And of course, it finally the poor, how you promote your product, how you get it out there, how do you know your customers are really reporting about that? And the process is behind that. That was a really long question and I'll break it back down as we go through it. So just go ahead and take us through the the harvest, how you're sourcing your material. Okay. Is this still good, you think? It's gripping down it a little bit, yeah. Too. Our, our microphone keeps on slowly gripping down the stand. This. There, maybe that All right. should be good. We're back. Okay. <clears throat> so as far as the sourcing, you know, when we were very, 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 very new, we just tried to get things from wherever I could get it. Some of the places, like there was a, a place right over here in Darden Prairie that designed a brew. Mark over there was, you know, he had a place that you could go in and he had winemaking supplies and grain and things like that. And so we'd get some things over there and then we'd look online. And finally, I, you know, just tripped over enough resources that really got things lined out where we could, you know, cookie cutter moving forward, big suppliers got set up with accounts, so forth, moving forward. And then my big focus was how do we get our grain 
that I want because I wanted the corn absolutely from Missouri. It's nearly impossible to find rye 100% from Missouri. And barley, you probably could, but I really wanted someone who would deliver. And we're, we're pretty rural out in Loman, Missouri. And so we were fortunate to find Bono Burns out of St. Louis here. And they do a lot of delivery to bakeries and breweries. And of course, there's not a lot of distilleries out there. So it wasn't, wasn't a lot of common, but they had everything. They just hadn't uh, done a lot with corn because breweries and bakeries don't use a lot. And so they agreed to find someone and that met those conditions for us and the corn chopped the way we wanted. And so that's what we've been using ever since uh, for, for that. Now, <clears throat> for the rest of it, we use enzymes we get from different places and different kinds of supplies. You know, they're generally online suppliers uh, for those kind of things, uh, but they're recognized within the industry. Um, bottles aren't really a big problem, knock on wood anymore, but we got so paranoid about it as soon as there was availability, we stocked up, you know, and hope to not have that, that issue anymore. Now, when you talk about what makes us unique or, or what makes our product unique to us, uh, again, I'm a, a big bourbon person. I really like my bourbons to be on the vanilla side. I like a little bit sweeter notes in the front. I like a medium to high ethanol nose. And I really like an overall encompassing experience on the full tongue. Those are, those are things that I strive for. <clears throat> so how do you get those? You know, there are all kinds of different distilling methodologies to try to get there. But we do use primarily three, five, 10, and 15-gallon barrels. So virtually no one else does. Now, there's, there's many that use 15 and 30, but almost no one uses the smaller increment barrels. Why is that? What's, what's different well, about that? Primarily, it's because it's four times as expensive. You know, but we didn't have $10 million to make a lot of juice and stick it in big, big barrels and then just put it away and not touch it for four or five years. So if you put it in a, a three-gallon barrel, as an example, has eight times the surface area to the liquid as a 53. A five-gallon has six, six and a half times. So that means it ages that much faster. There's a lot of people that'll poo-poo that and argue the point. You're never going to go through the full oxygenation. You're never going to have all the esterification that goes on in an eight to 10, 12-year juice, I yeah. admit, fully. But you can make a very, very fine whiskey or bourbon in, in three and five-gallon barrels in six months. Hmm. Really interesting. So you, is that where you typically stop with yours? Is it six month to eight month, or do you ever go for a year or more? For the primary dump, it's about six months, and I I answer it that way because our our flagship bourbon, our Black Anvil bourbon, we use it in our apple wine whiskey. We use it in our honey barrel finish, in our toasted barrel finish, in our single barrel, and our barrel proof. So that one product makes five. And so let's move on to the pour. Uh, how have you? been getting your product out there five employees last i checked your team i guess oh, you well, count your team not uh, not including siblings not including we do have some volunteers and helpers but we don't have any employees per okay se. yeah so how do you what do you do to put your product out there we try to sign up for as many of the festivals that make sense you know this what is today wednesday tonight i'm doing a <clears throat> a big uh, tasting at a men's club and a church basement. <laughs> Supposed to be 50, 60 gentlemen down there. Those are always great. I love the private ones almost better than I do the, the public ones. But, you know, you do the, the Herman Bourbon Festival we had a month ago. 
this Saturday is the Herman Smoke Fest. That should be great. Then we'll do the St. Louis Bourbon Society. That's a huge, epic event every year. This will be the third one, October 6th, I think is a Friday, yeah. down at Lip Mansion. And those guys have been great. Drew and James had founded that. You know, they, there's going to, I don't know, be like 400 different whiskeys. Now, those are always interesting because folks come down to that and whether or not they really want to try local Missouri stuff when they have all the big boys there, you know, but pe people are good about it. And maybe not everybody wants to pay for the VIP treatment and, you know, coming around, but that's primarily how we do it. And I do most of the festivals. And then I try to do tastings that, you know, we're in all the Friar Tuck stores here in Missouri. We're in all of the, well, they're currently called beer and sauce, beer sauce. I think they're going to be undergoing a, a branding change here soon, but we're in all four of those. And we're in dad's bottle shop over here at Lake St. Louis. And we've been lucky enough to be in Grillo's Chopping Barrel since the day they opened. And so I try to do periodic tastings at those for their customers or new customers to just to be able to try our products. Because when you're not a name brand and you're not a household name, people got to try it. You know, they're not just going to walk in and go, oh, yeah, give me that blacksmith unless exactly. they've had it before. Okay. And uh, a lot of beverage industry owners I've talked to mention, I asked them like, well, how do you know that your customers are going to like this? And their first answer is typically, well, we make it for ourselves. We make what we like and then kind of move on from there. Do you have any different philosophy on that? Or like, how do you know that your product is, you have a six month to a year lead in time for going to be received. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting that's an interesting kind of statement and question. So if I was asked that directly, I suppose I would say, well, I have a good feeling that I, I know what most people like, you know, cause I know what brands sell. I know what brands are popular and I know the palette or profile of those brands. So when I pinpointed a profile that, that I like that I wanted to pursue, it, it matched those. So it seemed like a logical choice on top of that hundreds of tastings and events. I mean, I've, I've stood in front of thousands of people and gotten the best feedback you can ever get. Facial expressions. <laughs> you know, I mean, people can try to be nice or try to not be nice or whatever, you know, but nobody wants to just say something terrible. But you can tell genuinely when people really like your product uh, over and over and over again. And they're, <laughs> especially the ones that are surprised that are just doing it because, well, what the hell, you're here. So I'll try it. But then they're like, damn, that's really good. <laughs> that was a great. Yeah. And, you know, you're like, yeah, thanks. I know, but don't be so surprised. <laughs> this is Missouri whiskey? Yeah. Yeah, I get gotcha. that a lot. You mm -hmm. know, I, I mean, I still get people uh, this very week. Uh, I mean, people are just shocked to see, what do you mean it's a Missouri bourbon? It's not made in Kentucky. I'm like, for real? Yeah, you're really saying that? Uh, you know, we just did an event at uh, the governor's mansion last night. We were uh, uh, on their lawn in a tent, and it was a lovely event. And uh, there's still some people there that act like they don't know that very thing. I'm like, that Congress passed a law. You know, it's been almost two years. In order to create your product at Blacksmith, this obviously takes a lot of teamwork. How does communicating the process with your team play into the success of Blacksmith? Well, let's let's say it like this. So my my brother Mike and I do 99% of all the manufacturing. So because he lives next door, he is there every weekend. And I'm generally there every other weekend. I have to say generally because during the fall festival season, I, I'm, I'm not able to do that. 
weekends are always a festival or whatever. But when, when I'm not there, you know, I rely on him to communicate to me, do we need a grain order? Are we good on enzymes? Are we good on barrels? Do we need to reorder any of those? And then, you know, I need to communicate with our vendors. There was, there was a point when our cooperage had a fire and they were unable to produce for an extended period of time. And that made it very difficult. So I was regularly working with my brother, Mike, like, what, what can we do? How can we do this? How can we do that? While I try to find these other barrels to stop gap until our regular Cooper was, was back up and running. And then, so it, it's, it's regular. I mean, it's two, three times a week, if not more, you're talking about just the operational, what we need to do kind of thing. And then on the sales side, if I have a big event like tonight and like Saturday, I have to relay it to him to make sure that he's got packaging set aside, you know, make sure that he has everything that I need. And if I don't have it, if I sold 10 times more than I expected, then I have to make a trip up. I've made two trips up just for four hours recently just to do that kind of thing, bottle something special. And, and that's really something we haven't even gotten into yet that uh, one of my, my most passionate things that I love to do is the, the private labeling or the private creating a, a something different for someone else. So I've been uh, fortunate enough to, to do Grillo's first anniversary special edition, second, and then I'm, you were just walked by the table. I'm labeling his third, which is this Saturday. Okay. I saw a, a news thing that you made a special 200 bottle anniversary for, what was it, Bicentennial or what was it for? We did a 200 bottle Cole County Bicentennial bourbon and Cole County is where the capital is, but we're the only licensed distillery in Cole County. So we, we got to, to make that. And the following year, it's funny because that county was actually established prior to the statehood. And then Missouri State Bicentennial was last year. And we were chosen to make that as well. So we made 200 numbered bottles for that. And most of those, I think, were snatched by people in Congress and so forth. But that, that was going pretty quickly as well. That's interesting. So is that what started your private labeling or what were really, what got you into wanting to do the private labels? You know, that, that was the first one, the Cole County one, I think was a big, big push on it. And when I went down to Louisville for my executive urban steward class, I had some conversations with folks down there and realized there were some barrels that I could buy of Kentucky quality, Kentucky product, you know, one or two barrels at a time. And so I started uh, talking to my liquor store customers here, and they were very, very interested. So started putting together special things for for folks there. At Dad's Bottle Shop, I did a couple of, of just a private labels there. But we're also the house brand bourbon at, at two different liquor, or restaurants here, and just putting a different label on it. You know, most of the time when you go to Buffalo Trace or Woodford and you buy a barrel for Seventeen, twenty thousand dollars. They'll put a little sticker with your name on it. Oh. I'll, I'll replace the whole front label, you know. And we we started doing that for weddings and man, you know, guys that want something for their man cave or corporations that want to do gifts for their clients or their vendors or even their employees. And it's just a lot of fun. I mean, it's fun just to do with our own juice, but it's really a lot of fun to create a new flavor too. So going back to communication, real quick, is it is you and your brother? Doing most of the communication back and forth. Yeah. And then our other there. brother in LA, he does most of the labels for yeah. us, so the artwork. Okay. So, 
you got to communicate back and forth with him. No, no, not this way. Do it this way. Change this to that, you know. So a miscommunication is a pretty big deal. Then. It can be, yeah. Yeah. You, and you could Technically, you could be fined if you did something wrong there. Have you ever run into situations where you kind of realize, like, maybe a little later than you'd like to, that something was a problem? <laughs> More than once. More than once. Yeah. Okay. What typically happens to that kind of, and that communication slip up? What's, what's typically, do you feel, the... The catalyst take that off where this this communicate well one of them uh that i can think of was we didn't done we didn't understand how to do uh sales tax filing uh sales tax or excise tax i don't recall which it was the first year and you know i think everybody thought somebody else was going to do it and we didn't have an accountant uh, at the time we didn't have the big blown up software and and we were late on it and by the time we realized it we were paranoid to death you know because we were so new that we were going to get some giant fine or something so we're all yelling at each other trying to figure out who, whose fault it was and finger pointing that how to fix it but i mean that was i mean it wasn't that big of a deal but it, that was the first one that i could go yeah. okay okay so it's a real case that you didn't know what you didn't know but he's trying to find out yeah and okay if, and if you had the opportunity to look at the ctv manual it looks a lot like the irs manual <laughs> just okay huge all right all right so if you had to do that again how would how would you approach that well i think it uh, i don't know that i do things much differently but understanding things in a more of a kind of a project management type way hmm? you know draw out some sops ahead of time on on your key components especially where the government's involved on procedures that are you're expected to okay do. all right yeah, it just reminds me that that story reminds me of I have a client that's growing into retail now, and they are still they they're anticipating the waterfall come. They don't know what's going when is when it hits when all the orders come in, trying to calculate and they handle the capacity. Mm. And so I worked started working with them to literally map it out. So you lay along prototype it without actually oh, walk yeah. yourself and that they're able to catch a couple bottlenecks. Could have hurt them that they got out of the way before the tidal wave of orders have started. So that reminded me of very much of what you're looking at. You're doing like Six Sigma Kanban kind of thing? It's it's somewhat similar. I pull from a lot of different tools. I pull from an agile world. I pull from a liberating structures and also kind of visual dives process map, process mapping. Yeah. So yeah, I, I pull from whatever's needed answer the challenge at hand. Gotcha. So I, I facilitate workshops through that. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, that definitely reminded me of a, of a situation and that's kind of how I went with my client and kind of attempted to avoid, you can never avoid everything. Oh yeah. But you can be as prepared as possible. Process mapping would be a, a good thing for us to have started with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. What is your current biggest open challenge? Well, we, we would very much like to expand and automate okay. so we had applied for a, a state economic grant and we were very hopeful on that alas we were not successful but we we can we plan to apply for it again we're told that it'll be coming out again and you know that kind of thing because right now we're so manual and we're, we're no spring chickens when my brother's older than i am and you got to 
slough these bags of grain around and dig them out and haul this stuff around. It's just, it's not fun. I was going to ask, what's, what is manual versus automation in distillery? Yeah. So right now our mash tun and our still has the element, the heating element inside. So that's not ideal at all. You know, you want it to be to where you can just put your mash and everything inside and not have to worry about it because we've got the elements inside. We have to separate grain and only put liquid in. Otherwise, it'll burn on the elements. So <clears throat> it, when we say automate, not only does it, does it go to another level of type of vessels, but it, it would change how we could and what we could use as far as grain mediums. And then it, all that heavy lifting would go away. Okay. And that part of the ex, um, expansion is even bigger footprint automation work yeah well it, it's not necessarily but we, we would do it in one step got it so if we're going to buy a piece of equipment we're not going to buy a bigger one with the element in we're going to buy one that's steam or oil or something and it's jacketed and doesn't have the element inside yeah okay definitely a big challenge and what are your current steps right now well we well we need funding funding <laughs> funding yeah okay all right. Funding from someone that doesn't want, you know, 50% equity. <laughs> Investors, they're looking for you. Yeah. All right. So beyond the expansion, beyond the automation, what do you see for next? Well, we're, we've really been growing the, the, the private spectrum quite a bit. And when I talk about limitations and the need for expansion, that's cooking our own products. But you don't have nearly as many of those limitations, if, if I may, if I procure juice. So if I've got a client that like we did one that was a 250 bottle order for a group in Florida, I did another one in, in central Missouri, it was 200 bottle. If I'm able to do those with juice that I can buy, even if I finish it and do something different to it, if I don't have to mash it, cook it, age it and all that, I mean, that's a, that's a huge huge deal taken off of our backs. And then I'm also able to sell it right away. Right. So yes, the margin can be less because you didn't make it yourself, but uh, I really see that that's, that's a big, big area for us. Okay. All right. Final, a couple questions here. One of them is, I always think is the hardest for, for a producer is your favorite beverage <laughs> or the ones you make. Oh, the one I make. I like high proof. So I, I really do like our barrel proof. The, the family reserve that's finished in a toasted barrel is really pretty delicious. And then the hammered rye, because that's the only one that's a different mash bill. So it's a 30% high rye bourbon. That one's just got a nose and a depth of flavor that I think is outstanding. Of course, I bring that home for my, for my use. A little higher proof than I bottle it. <laughs> ah, nice, nice. That's, that's always the perk of yeah. producing it. So you mentioned a family recipe again. So what have you done to change that to kind of bring it up to standards or bring it up to I don't know a, a modern palate? Well, it's more it's more about just how things are done now. You know, when moonshiners made anything, they always added sugar. It's kind of like homemade wine. Everybody adds sugar. Commercial producers don't use sugar, and commercial distillers. Typically, don't use sugar. You just learn how to cook the grain to gelatinize the grain 
and release all the starches so you don't need that. So grandpa's recipe was a lot of sugar. <laughs> ah, okay. But, you know, he didn't have the means to get it to 190 degrees or keep it there for 90 minutes and all that. So um, it's obvious why, but okay, yeah. I didn't know that. That's, that's great to know. I didn't know they, were, they supplement with sugars and... And that's what probably a lot of reason why a lot of enzymes are being used now to break down those starches. It is. Sugars. Yeah. Or uh, is there a, other processes that don't use enzymes? Well, uh, and if when you look at uh, certain grains that are certain mash bills that only have like a 5% barley, uh, you know, maybe it's 95% corn or something like that. The barley is only there because of the amylase. Uh, so it adds that enzyme just to help break down natural enzyme. corn. All right. All right. Great. All right. I just wanted to get, I wanted to touch back on the family recipe a little bit. I kind of we skirted over it, but that was a great segue into it. Yeah. So th thanks for that information. That was really interesting with the sugar. I did not know that. Finally, do you have any upcoming events or promotions or places you're going to be? That people want to try you, try you out and come see and talk to you? Other than tonight and Saturday, there's, uh, yeah, definitely the, the Urban Society, October, October 6th. I believe there's, uh, the governor's, Mm, what's that called? There's a governor's meeting at the old Tantera. It's going to be at that in November. And I think most of the, most of the fall things end about mid, mid October. I, I don't think we're going to do the, the winter fest, the whiskey and winter. It just, that just didn't work out for us. Are there any seasonal favorites? You're always there. I'm always at the, uh, the beer sauce. They always have, well, they always have a spring and a fall. They're trying to put that together right now, so I'm not really sure the date of, of their fall one. And the Bourbon Society generally has the spring one, the Bourbon and Brews, and that's over at Frankie Martin. So that's always a great time, too. Been at both of those so far, and I plan, plan to continue those. Okay, great. And are you guys that we should look out for in the next six months to a year? Well, we, we just rolled out two new ones, our Devil's Forge Cinnamon Whiskey. It's 66.6 .6 proof. Excellent. <laughs> it wasn't going to be called Devil's Forge, but every time I did the math, the formula came out to 66.6, .6, so I just changed the name instead. <laughs> that makes sense. Great. That's great marketing there. Yeah. And then our, our other one, which is really surprised me at how well uh, the market has taken this, we call it Snow Day. Snow Day. And we call it Snow Day because when you take a drink of it, you just think of cold, blustery weather. It's it's a weeded bourbon that I've finished in Brazilian Amberana oak and yellow birch. And it just has this cinnamon and nutmeg kind of all-spice kind of thing that just makes you think, you know, snowing outside. Cool. And I didn't want it to have a, a, a Christmas, you know, kind of connotation. So we just went with Snow Day. And I released it at the Herman Bourbon Festival. And we had 13 different school teachers come by and say, I've got to try that just because of the name. And I didn't even go that route thinking about it. But they, they're like, we love snow days uh, as much as the kids. That is great. And I just what started What to laughing. do on your snow days. <laughs> right. I'm like, I need to market this to the National Teachers Association. <laughs> oh, man. That is great. So those are out. And then we just got a label approved for our, what we're just calling breakfast bourbon, um, which is our flagship again. A Missouri maple syrup staves or okay. barrels. Yeah. Are you doing any uh, collaboration with anybody? We, well, <laughs> we are 
for the maple syrup, but they, the local farmer didn't want to be named uh, on there because they're, they're not sure that they're able to keep up with demand. So we may have to Fair switch enough. it to somebody else. <laughs> well, it's a good first try. That's yeah. awesome. All right. Well, again, take a look at uh, Blacksmith Distillery's website. Is it just uh, blacksmithdistillery.com? All right. And check out what they have. See what you like. Again, Russ, thanks a ton for having me here and, and talking with me about uh, Blacksmith. Absolutely. And one final thought I have been doing last year, did some teaching for distilling courses over at St. Charles Community College. And those should be additional courses coming up very soon, October and uh, maybe December for additional in-depth distilling courses. All right. Well, thanks for that information. So if you have, you want to learn from a distiller, uh, the community college and yep. uh, the one on Winghaven, or Winghaven. the Overot Academy. All yeah. right. Okay. Again, thanks a lot for your time. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to Harvest of Poor, the business of beverages with Matthew Shep. Check the show notes for our guest contact information and connect with Matthew Shep on LinkedIn today. Mm-hmm.